What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room and part one of my interview with Mark Lavosi. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. Mark is cut for such directors as Cameron Crowe, and has cut such films as The Wedding Crashers, The Devil Wears Prada, and his latest film, The Blind Side, which is in theaters now. The interview took place in August during Edit Fest while Mark was cutting The Blind Side. So you got some questions for me. Yes, uh, well, please. I guess you talked about it in the panel, but how did you, if you could just reiterate how you got into film editing? I got into film editing when I went to college. I went to Penn State and I went to film school there. And film school taught me many things, but the, the main thing that I learned at film school was that I loved editing. You know, I tried everything. I tried writing, directing, um, you know, even acting a little bit. And that's something I never want to relive. Um, and, you know, editing turned out to be the one thing that I could get lost in. And I don't know, it's somehow, it just captivated me, you know, the puzzle solving of it all just kind of really thrilled me. The creating of a third idea from two separate ideas, two shots together creating a third idea just really struck me in a, in a way that, that no other part of the filmmaking process did. So that's what sort of focused me on becoming an editor. And from there, I kind of didn't look to the left or to the right. I just decided I wanted to be an editor. I love movies all my life, so I decided I wanted to be a feature editor. And I went to New York and put together a tiny little resume and took it around to every place I could think of to, you know, just somehow get my foot in the door. And ultimately, I did at a place called Splice is Nice, a place that edited TV commercials. And after about a year of working there, I kind of realized that I was sort of heading down a road that was not the road I wanted to go down, which was feature editing. And I was starting to lose sight of that. So I kind of shook myself out of my stupor and my steady paycheck and started to pound the pavement again with the new resume. And I went to the Bureau Building and Trans Audio and and Magno and all the places in New York where people edited features and I started to poke my head in and I finally you know managed to uh, get a job and I became a sound apprentice on a film back in 1985 and got into the union and continued to work as an apprentice and then as an assistant editor in New York for a number of years and and in LA as well I had to go to LA for a while and I met Joe Hutching on the film Wall Street. I was sinking dailies on that film and Joe was an assistant on the show at that time. And he and I kept in touch and later in the 90s I assisted him on a few shows like French Kiss and, and I was an assistant on Meet Joe Black when he came to New York. Long story short, when he hooked up with Cameron Crowe and decided to do the film Almost Famous, he asked me if I'd be his first assistant. And I, I agreed and came out to Los Angeles and Joe and Sarkline, who was the other editor on the show, started getting pretty much inundated with footage because Cameron was shooting a lot of footage. And some of it spilled over into my lap and I was given an opportunity to cut some scenes. I did a pretty good job of it and they felt comfortable enough to let me keep cutting and the footage kept coming in. Before you know it, I was cutting pretty much full-time after like a month or two of production starting. 
and I cut pretty much full time until the very end of the show. Towards the end of the show, I was asked by Joe if I wanted to join him on Vanilla Sky um, with the understanding that uh, I'd be doing pretty much cutting all the time. And indeed I did. I spent the next year cutting, sort of co-editing with Joe, and at the end of that show he gave me a, uh, a shared front credit, and that was really my start. So what was it that you learned as an associate editor that you brought over to Vanilla Sky? Well, I, I learned the process of cutting on Almost Famous will allow me to sort of become acquainted with Cameron's style and his sensibilities. And editing on Almost Famous gave me a year of spending time in a room with Cameron Crowe. I began to understand his point of view, his sensibilities, his style. And of course, that was only an asset when it came to cutting Vanilla Sky. You know, I was able to carry through with that. Cameron, I think, was happy with my work, you know, and that made it all the easier. Now, what was it that, because you talked in, in an article for the Editors Guild about cutting rhythmically, and you said that Joe, and I believe it's, I don't, don't want to mispronounce his name, Hutching, or Hutching. Yeah, Hutching. Hutching. Yeah. You said that he taught you how to cut rhythmically cut, on almost... Cut audio... A dialogue, sorry. Dialogue, like, okay, yeah. yes, so that's a yeah. key distinction. What I meant by that was Joe had an interesting approach, and I don't know that he did this all the time, but certainly he explained it to me and it left an impression with me, and, and I sort of adopted it. And it, it's not something you use in every scene at every moment because some scenes are purely visual in nature, and, and the audio is something that follows the visual aspect of the scene. and you know, that, that it is what it is. What, what I meant when I said that in the articles, you know, I would sometimes, you would, you would cut, you know, sentences together, words together, you know, you'd space out, you'd, you'd rhythm out the dialogue. You know, literally I would close my eyes at times and just listen to the readings of half sentences and, and words and I'd string them together into one sentence, you know, it wouldn't all come from like one take or maybe it would come from one take and you know just d different parts of what I'm trying to say is is that oftentimes in dialogue scenes I would approach it by cutting the dialogue by listening to the scene as opposed to watching the scene I would cut for the rhythm of what the way somebody said something in a certain take the speed and the rhythm of what they were saying and I would try to craft the scene based on what it sounded like and then the picture would be whatever the picture would be. It would just follow, and then you would try to, you know, slide splices around or put shots over top to sort of glue it together and make it a seamless whole. You know, you d I would deal with the image second. And, and that sort of approach isn't something you do all the time. Sometimes it's just a finish to the scene. It's like what I would do after cutting a dialogue scene that in a normal way with my eyes open. The last thing I would do would be to close my eyes and listen to it. And I'd listen to the pauses, and I would try to decide whether it's rhythmed exactly the way I'd want it to be. That's something that really came in handy when I cut Wedding Crashers, because, you know, Vince and Owen were tremendously talented improvisers. And they were always on point with what they wanted to say vis-a-vis -vis the script. But they would say it in wildly different ways from take to take hilariously funny ways and I would just find I would cherry-pick the best moments that were on point and I would construct 
the dialogue, the sentences that they were saying, sometimes from a few words to a whole sentence. And I would have to do it by listening to it, by not looking at it, because it would be just a, ju it would be a jump cut string of nonsense visually. Mm -hmm. So that's, so you would listen to the scene, you'd make sure that it sounded like one continuous whole, and then you would just start to throw in other shots over top of the image to, to make the, that it was one yeah, continuous flowing one sentence. You're editing audio, you're editing out the ums and all that sort of thing. And all I'm saying is that I would do the same thing oftentimes for a scene, just to make it flow better, just to cut out all of the garbage, all the nonsense, all the things that weren't on point, whatever it would be. And the picture would just be what it is. It would just follow and there would be jump cuts, you know, lines of jump cuts. And then you just have to cut to something to hide the jump cuts. You'd have to cut to a cutaway of something, you know, and then you have a piece of someone talking. Oops, there's a jump cut. I better hide that. And, and it'll, it'll sound like a continuous sentence. It'll be actually comprised of a couple of different takes. Joe, and it's funny because I mentioned it to Joe not that long ago, and he didn't remember ever telling me that. And I know I didn't dream it, so I, he, he did definitely attribute it to him, and, and it was helpful in the more improvisational type stuff that I've had to do. Mm -hmm. Vanilla Sky had a very almost experimental style to it. It did. Where did the experimental tone come from, and what influences did you use for this? Well, I'd say the experimental tone of Vanilla Sky was sort of an evolving style. Vanilla Sky was interesting. We had, it was a long post period, which allowed us time to play with it quite a bit. You know, when scenes went together initially, in, in my recollection, they were pretty, they were cut in a pretty standard way, you know, as you would expect a scene to be cut. And at a certain point, I, I guess it was after shooting was over, Cameron started to urge us to go down a less conventional road, you know, and I'll speak for myself in all of this, but I remember the first cut of the, the scene where Tom runs through Times Square mm -hmm. was cut, you know, it was well cut, but it was cut very, um, you know, there, it wasn't jump cut, at least that's my recollection, it wasn't jump cut, it was pretty standard, straightforward stuff. and. After a while, Cameron's prodding, we'd start to play with it a little bit and start to find bits and pieces from other scenes, little things that were shot that probably we didn't know why they were shot at the time, just little odd bits. And, you know, we grabbed some score because Nancy Wilson would have score pieces and sketches sort of laid out before we actually started editing. And we had this great repository for, for music from, from Nancy. And we would play with that and take it and throw it in here, try it there, jump cut this, move that around, try to see what we could do to fracture the scene a little bit. But you know, the idea being with Vanilla Sky is that the whole thing, I mean, not the whole thing, but a good portion of the film is a, is a dream. Mm -hmm. And it's a dream that's kind of short-circuiting. It's almost like being inside the character's skull as it's short-circuiting. Mm -hmm. And that's certainly the case where he, he smothers yeah. his girlfriend, you know, um, Penelope Cruz, who turns out to be Cameron Diaz. That was a scene that Joe gave me to cut. Mm -hmm. And my first cut, you know, it, was, it was fine. It, it was just pretty straightforward. Reaches a point where he smothers her, and that was that. Cameron came in and he's like, no, you gotta take it further, you gotta take it further. And, I started to play around with 
you know, thinking a little bit outside the box. I mean, it certainly wasn't something I came up with on my own. He, he said it to me at one point. He says, you got to play jazz. And, you know, jazz is a metaphor I've used before with editing. And, you know, I kind of understood what he meant. You just have to sort of like, you have to go from your gut. You have to mm -hmm. go from an emotional place. You can't go from a logical place with the scene. And I started to really take the scene and screw around with it and change it up and add things and subtract things and add weird sounds. And, you know, there was one point where we sat in a room together and Cameron saw the cut and it reached a point where he was into it, he was into it, and then suddenly I hadn't gone far enough. And he went, he, he went, no! And <laughs> we stopped, he said, and he said, here's what I want you to do, I want you to try this. And I started to understand at that point, it was a slow process, but I started to understand what he really wanted, which was to really make it crazy and psychotic. And so I started to play with different music, we started to play with slowdowns and, and just find different ways to sort of, in, in, a, in a very experimental way, I guess, try to convey the essence of what was going on psychologically, but on an external sort of visual way. The, the idea of jazz and, and film editing, do you do that a lot when you cut, that you sort of have that, the background sort of typical style of cutting, but then you get to go sort of experiment and try new things with your editing? Well, I think that the experimenting is completely dependent on the subject matter mm -hmm. and on the footage. I mean, I certainly haven't done anything quite that extreme on any other film I've worked on, but then, you know, the films that I've worked on have been pretty kind of mainstream fare, mm -hmm. you know? So I would say that that was my greatest opportunity for something like that. If, if we're talking specifically about, you know, the Vanilla Sky approach. Thinking outside the box is something that you always sort of, I think, have to resort to at a certain point in the editing room, especially when you run into problems and you don't know how to solve them. Mm -hmm. You have to stop and you have to think, now, what can I really do that's not the expected conventional way? And you may come up with something. You may come up with a piece of a scene a piece of something from another scene that's no longer in the film that can help bridge two scenes mm -hmm. that you need when you need to get from one place to another. You know, when you, you, there, there are ways to sort of like stop, pause, take a breath and say, okay, I don't have to follow strict script order here. I don't have to follow the way the story is meant to go. I can think of what if there's a whole new way to do this, you know? And that comes in handy when, that, that sort of approach comes in handy when you do have to do restructuring when you do have to think about, you know, does the scene work where it's supposed to be or does it work better 20 minutes later? That's yeah, restructuring the whole film even, yeah. Even the whole film, depending on the film. Some films, um, some films lend themselves to that, but not many do. Now, one question I had, but it's all, this one's more of a personal one because I stumbled across it, uh, the Connet Project. Oh, that, oh, yeah, that's... I don't know if you, if they was, it was like a major thing in the editing room or if you, it was just something stuck in the sound It phase. was, it was very weird. It was, uh, just one day we were in the edit and this CD was sitting there and mm -hmm. I, I don't remember who found it, who brought it in, but we thought it was pretty cool and creepy and it seemed to all of us, I think, to exemplify another layer of the mystery of what was going on with this character is almost like a clue. There's something about the sound of it. It's coming from beyond the mists or the veils of, of this world. 
-hmm. you know, it sounds like it's it's from another world. It just it's got a very strange, interesting creepiness to it. And it seems somehow like in, in kind of an emotional way that it it fit in mm -hmm. with the film. It's almost like David Tom's character in his dream state is getting these little signals from the mm -hmm. real world, you know, in his sort of suspended animation place, you know, in the future or whatever. That's mm -hmm. kind of how I approached it. And we threw them in. I mean, that's kind of like the verbose way of just saying, we thought it sounded pretty interesting and creepy. Yeah. There's a lot in Vanilla Sky to find if you just, you know, have the patience to watch mm -hmm. it a few times. It's definitely, I think, a film that lends itself to more than one viewing. Well, that was my interview. I'd like to thank Mark for allowing me to interview him. I'd also like to thank the ACE, Jenny McCormick, and my producer, Lauren Woodcock. Join me next week for part two of my interview with Mark Lopolsi. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell.